If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up your Bible to Romans chapter 11. And if you don't have one, we have strategically placed some all over the room. So there's some black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those and open up to page 948, 948, 947, somewhere in that area. Romans chapter 11, we're continuing our Romans series. And uh, just to remind you, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are considered by most people to be some of the most confusing stuff. There's some, some big ideas, some difficult uh, concepts in this section. So uh, we are grateful that we're coming to the end of this section here in the next couple of weeks. That's exciting. Um, in Romans chapter 11, he starts off with this idea, this question of rejection. So we're calling it this week, Rejection. We can often wonder if God is rejecting us due to circumstances. And I want to start with the story that Paul will mention, but he doesn't go into details. It's an Old Testament story about a prophet named Elijah. So there's a very famous Old Testament prophet named Elijah. If you want to go back and read his story, it's in 1 Kings. So Elijah was this prophet of God, and his ministry took place in a unique time in the history of Israel when, his, uh, when Israel had really turned their back on God. So it's a time in the history of Israel, when Israel didn't believe God, didn't trust God, they were all worshiping this false god called Baal, Um, and there's just a lot of wickedness. There's a famous king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, you might have heard that before, Um, Ahab and Jezebel, very wicked, hated God, Um, were turning the people against uh, love and mercy and serving other people and turning people towards the selfishness and the serving of this evil god, Baal. So it's a real big conflict. And what's also interesting is throughout the history of the Bible, we often think of the Bible as the supernatural book where there are just miracles on every page. I don't know if you think that way. That's often how we think about it. But really, when you study the history of the stories in the Bible, there are just three periods of time when there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. And this is one of those periods. Um, So we've got crazy stuff that happens in the life of Moses and Joshua, right? Uh, Israel is first formed and rescued out of Egypt. There's some miraculous, amazing things that happen there. And then you've got miraculous and amazing things that happen during the time of Jesus and the ministry of him and his apostles. Uh, And then another one of those times is during the time of Elijah and Elisha. So if you're looking for sensational stories, these are some of the fun sensational stories you can read in scripture in 1 Kings 18 and 19. Well, what happens is the whole nation of Israel has turned their back on God None of them love God anymore. And so Elijah sets up this kind of contest, right? It's kind of like this religious Super Bowl where he challenges all the false prophets of Baal. And he says, what we're going to do is we're going to call on our God and have our God bring down fire to uh, set on fire a burnt offering to our God. And we'll see which God responds when we call on him. And so it was this interesting contest he sets up and it's just him against all these other false prophets and the false prophets are wailing and cutting themselves and you know, doing the kind of things that false prophets do, tearing themselves to pieces, wailing and crying out, dancing around, stripping their clothes off, doing all the fun stuff that, that you see in those false religions. And they cannot get their God to respond, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting. Again, it's an interesting story. Elijah is mocking them, making fun of them. So there's some good drama in the story. And then Elijah decides to call on God. And what Elijah does, there had actually been a drought, but Elijah says, hey, take your water. You don't have much of it, but take your water and pour it over the offering. And then pour more water over the wood. And then pour more water around the place where we're setting up this burnt offering. He wets it all down just so there's no mistaking of what God is going to do. And then he calls out on God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And fire comes down from heaven and just burns up the whole thing. And it's just an amazing, supernatural, miraculous display of God's power. And so what do you think Elijah's response is then? 
Elijah's a holy man. He's a prophet. He's just won the, the religious Super Bowl, right? He's defeated all the false prophets. What does he do? He tells God, God, I want to kill myself because you've rejected me and your people. That's, that's basically what he says. H- have you ever been there? You've seen God show up in some kind of faithful way, but you just still feel like, yeah, God, you're gone. You're, you've abandoned me. You've rejected me. I don't know where you are. Things were so bad that even when God showed up in that miraculous way, Elijah still doubted. And I hope that's encouraging to you because sometimes we think, well, if we were really holy, we'd never doubt. I mean, this is one of the holier people in the whole Bible, right? He's a prophet of God. He's, he's beat these other prophets in this contest, yet he's still struggling with feeling like God has rejected him. Well, Paul's going to answer that same kind of question here. There's going to be questions that come up in our mind when the circumstances in our life fall apart. And that, that's happened to all of us in different ways, right? But there are times when our life falls apart, and that makes us think, God's rejected me. God's abandoned me. For Paul and many of the Jewish believers, they were wondering if God had completely given up on the people of Israel. Because so many of the people of Israel were not following Jesus. And now there are all these non-Israelites, non-Jews coming into the church. And so there are all these questions about, can we really trust a God who made promises to Israel and now he's kicked them to the curb and he's moved on to all the Greeks and the Romans, right? Is it, can you trust a God like that? And so there's all kinds of important reasons for us to want to know what the answer is, even if you're not a Jew. Many of us are not Jewish. Many of us are not Israelites. But we should wonder also, did God reject his people? Or is he faithful? Is he still gracious? So, so look at chapter 11. We'll start in verse 1, 11 verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? This is Elijah speaking, verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Harsh words. These are prophecies. He's quoting of judgment. Um, A lot of difficult stuff we're going to look at here. So I'm going to ask God to help us. Just going to pray that he would help us to understand and to learn what he wants us from this difficult text. God, we we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you that you haven't uh, abandoned us, uh, but that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've given us Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to be a hopeful people that would be listeners, that we would be learners, that you would open our minds and open our hearts, and that you would teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this concept of rejection, the question, as I said, is really focused on Israel. Has God given up on Israel and now moved on, kicked him to the curb, and now he's doing other things? But it also brings up that broader question, uh, as we saw in the life of Elijah, that we all ask, like, has God rejected me? What's going on in my life? And so, I want to start off by focusing on the question that Paul asks here, the question of rejection. We want to define it a little bit because I believe there's general application to feeling rejected, but we also have to deal first with the very specific kind of rejection that he's talking about here. So look again at verse 1. 
I ask then, has God rejected his people? Why does Paul ask then? Why does he ask that? Well, you have to go back to chapter 10. Uh, Stephen did a great job teaching us last week from uh, chapter 10 while we were on vacation, so I want to thank him for that. And in chapter 10, we talked a lot about how people believe in Jesus by hearing the word of Jesus. But then that section ended with, well, a lot of the Jews aren't believing. They're not following Jesus. And so then that is what leads to the question, oh, well then, is God just done with them? Has he just thrown them away? Like, what's, what's happening here? I ask, then, has God rejected his people? What is Paul's answer? He says, by no means, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's immediate answer is no. God has not thrown away Israel. What's his first proof? What's his evidence? His evidence is, well, I'm an Israelite. That's what Paul says. So God's not like rejecting all Israelites because he himself is an Israelite and he's following the Messiah. He's trusting in God. He's been shown grace through Jesus. And so we need to recognize here that the the question is not, does God reject anyone ever? That's not the question. The, The question is, has God in totality rejected all of Israel? Has he thrown away all of Israel? So we need to distinguish those. You see how those are two different questions, really? One question could be, uh, does God ever judge anyone? Does God reject anyone ever? Well, well, yeah, he does. And we'll get more details on that. God ultimately, as we've seen in chapters 9, 10, and 11, for those that say, um, God, I want my will to be done. I want to be my own God. In a sense, God says, okay, then you can be your own God. That, that's ultimate rejection, is when God gives us over to our own desires. That's what Paul laid the foundation with in Romans chapter 1. So here... He's saying, it's not that God never rejects anyone uh, for not having faith, for turning from him. It's that God has not completely rejected his people. Paul's saying God is still at work. He's still at work because Paul himself is an Israelite. And then look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So again, I want to back up and look at the whole perspective of what's the whole greater perspective on judgment and grace. Because we sometimes swing from one extreme to the other, right? A lot of religions are religions of grace, uh, and they might take it to an extreme where judgment doesn't exist at all. And that definition of grace can be, God just doesn't care about anything, right? That's one extreme. And there are some religions that that focus on grace that way, the concept of grace and God's kindness. And then there's another extreme of judgment. God is holy. God is just. You better be just. I'm just. Why don't you be just like me, you know? And that leads to a lot of judgmentalism and as modern people, we, we tend to reject that more, right? We're, we're more attracted to the extreme grace where God doesn't care about anything. Uh, we're less attracted to the hardline justice religions, although we can still see those all around us, right? And sometimes we fall into that as well. God's all justice and judgment or God's all grace and kindness. Well, in the gospel, both of those come together. And the foundation that Paul has left uh, laid in the book of Romans is that we all deserve judgment. I have a picture here of a house fire. And if you want to paint a general picture of what's happened in the world, I would say it this way, going back all the way to Adam and Eve, but we see this replayed in our own life. It's like we're walking around the world, pouring gasoline on everything and throwing matches. That's, that's who we are, right? And so when we ask, has, has God rejected me? Has God rejected my people? Well, we all start off on a foundation of rejecting God. That, that's where we start, and that's the foundation that Romans has laid. Remember Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So that's the biblical worldview, that actually we're all guilty. That makes us all the same. And so this question that Paul keeps coming back to between the Jews and the Gentiles, it's laid on the foundation of, well, yeah, maybe you grew up with a culture that was strict and religious and good in some ways. And maybe you grew up in this totally pagan culture. But you know what? Y'all are really both the same. And that's a really important lesson for us to learn as well, because we're a mixed group. We're people that come from very strict religious backgrounds. We're people that come from very wild, non-religious backgrounds. And the Bible says we're all the same. Like, we don't bring to the church, we don't bring to God some kind of spiritual resume that says, I'm better than other people because I grew up strict or I grew up following my own heart or whatever it is that we bring to the table. God says we all alike have sinned. We're all walking around the world setting it on fire. And the picture in Romans is that God saves some of us by grace. He's snatching us out of this fire that we've created. It's something that we've done. So look again at verse 2. And in the midst of all that, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We've seen this concept of foreknowledge before. We saw this in Romans chapter 9. And I made the case that foreknowledge is not just a modern American concept of knowledge. Uh, We in the modern world tend to think of knowledge as facts, right? Like a multiple choice test. But in the Bible, knowledge is always a picture of intimacy and love. And so the image that keeps coming back throughout the scriptures is one of adoption. God finds us as an orphan, setting the world on fire, and in love and in grace towards us, he adopts us and he makes us his children. And that's the picture. Foreknowledge is God loving us and reaching out to us. And he's saying here, God doesn't abandon those that he's loved. God can't throw aside those that he's shown grace to. And so Paul is encouraging us when we feel like maybe God's rejected us to to be assured by that foreknowledge, by that love, by that adoption. So my application for you is, of course, there's a very technical application here of God has not abandoned Israel, therefore I can trust him to not abandon me. But there's, I think, a deeper one here where he he places it in foreknowledge and God's love and God's adoption of us, where he says, you can know that when bad things happen in your life, that that's filtered through a father that loves you. In the gospel, we have a picture of a God who is not uh, standing uh, ready to judge, but a God who has already judged our sins in Jesus. Jesus took all the judgment that we deserve on the cross. And so God shows us love and adoption and delight through Christ. And so when bad things happen, we have to stop and say, okay, this is not a picture of God is rejecting me. God is abandoning me. But I just know I live in a world where bad things happen and I need to trust him and hold on to him that he loves me because he's proven that love to me through his love and his adoption and his foreknowledge. So when the question of rejection comes up in your own life, remember that God is a faithful God, that God is a gracious God, that even though I deserve judgment, God's shown me grace. Does that mean everything goes perfect in our life? Well, no. I don't think any one of you here could testify to that. Even when we try to to testify to a life like that, when we try to say, hey, look, if you live your life like me, everything will work out. Well, then the next week things fall apart, right? It it just never, you can't maintain that for a lifetime. So the next thing that we're going to see as we move through the text is that the remnant is not rejected. He's going to particularly talk about this thing called the remnant. Um, Those are the people that have been rescued, right? Remnant is like the leftover material. If you sow, those are the extra pieces. And God's always saving some, right? He's always saving some. Look at, again, starting in verse 2, God has not rejected his people 
whom he foreknew. And he continues, now going into the story of Elijah. He says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. This is a very self-centered view. Sometimes this happens uh, when we're going through difficulties. There's the, there's the sin of pride where we, just the traditional sin of pride where we're like, look at me, look at how awesome I am, right? And we fall into that. But there's a different kind of pride that we go through when things are going bad, where we think, uh, look at me, all the bad things are happening because of me, right? And we kind of interpret all of life through the grid of ourself, I'm afraid Elijah is falling into this here. He's a holy man of God. He's this prophet. He knows that God is good. And yet he's saying these things. God, look at this. I'm, a, you know, I'm the only one left. No one else has been faithful except me. I think Elijah is overestimating himself in some ways. Verse 4 says, what is God's reply to him? Look at verse 4. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So God's saying, no, there's a bunch of other people as well. It's not just you, Elijah. You're not the only faithful one in the universe. Sometimes we feel like that. We think, well, look at me, God. I've been faithful, and everything's falling apart. You know, you've, you've rejected me. You've rejected your people. And he's saying, no, there's, there's a lot of other faithful people besides you, Elijah. There's a remnant. Verse 5, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, this is really important. He's saying there's a remnant chosen by grace. So just to back up again, big picture, what we've looked at in chapter 9, 10, 11, God's talked about election and choosing. We, we've talked about how it's one of the most difficult doctrines in the Bible. And, and basically, the way it plays out is this. When we trust in God, we can blame God for that. We can say, that was because God adopted me and loved me and showed his grace to me. He chose me. He showed love to me. It was his foreknowledge and his kindness. So when we have faith and we're trusting in God, we blame him. But when we don't have faith and we've turned away from him and we've done our own thing, we blame ourselves. And that's, that's the tension in Scripture, right? And so for a lot of us, we struggle with that, and we want to go all one or the other, right? It's all about God or it's all about mankind. But I think what Paul's been teaching here is that when we have trust, have faith in God, it's his doing. When we don't, it's our doing. And so that's the picture we've seen, and that kind of gives definition to what he talks about here when he says uh, being chosen, a remnant chosen by grace. That's God's choosing grace in our lives. Verse 6, he clarifies it though, and this is what we keep coming back to. If it is grace, it is no longer by works. No longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So so what is grace? Sometimes people say, you can use an acronym and say, God's riches at Christ's expense. Spelling out the word. That helps some people remember it. So it's, it's the kindness that God has shown to us in Jesus. But here Paul is defining it by, it's not works. What is works? The Greek word is uh, energeo, like energy, right? So it's basically anything we do. So, so grace means I didn't do it. That's what grace means. So what happens is a lot of us religious people, we think my religion, my faith is something I've done. And Christianity turns that upside down and says, no, it's something God did. It's not anything you did. That's the definition of grace. It's not you. It's not you. It's not me. It's not our works. It's not something I've produced. I grabbed a picture here of someone handing a present. And we can sometimes take this analogy too far, right? Because sometimes we think we deserve a present. Uh, Sometimes we think we deserve a gift. But the scriptures interchangeably use the concept of grace and gift and say those are the same things. God's 
kindness, his grace to us in Jesus, is a gift that he gives to us. We didn't earn it. He's just giving it to us. It's something for us to receive. It's not something for us to work up and earn. And again, this can be really difficult for us when things are going bad. When things are difficult or falling apart in our life, we can think, oh no, I've done something to deserve this. Or maybe you're doing really well, right? Maybe you're living a holy life, you're living up to your own expectations, you're doing good things, and then things go bad. What do you think then? You think, God, that's not fair because I've been putting my spiritual quarters into the spiritual vending machine and you owe me some blessings now, right? That's not grace. That's not grace. That's you working for God's blessings. Sometimes called the prosperity gospel, right? Like if I put in enough good stuff, God has to bless me in return. He owes me. God never owes us anything. That's the definition of grace. What he owes us is is judgment because we've turned from him and what he gives us is grace. So grace is not works. It's not what you or I do. So when you have a bad day, do you look back on your day and go, was I a good boy or a bad boy today? Do you you ever do that? You kind of go through the accounting? Like, did I deserve this? Do I need to be bitter at God because I've been good and he owes me a better day? Or is this really, I need to beat myself a little more? I need to be punished? No, it's all grace. It's never, it's never what you've done, right? What you do brings judgment. So we said earlier, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that he uh, owes us, through the wages of sin, he owes us death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So they're, they're two different systems. If you want a wage system, then the wage that we earn through our sin is death. But if you want a grace system, he gives us life. And that's what Paul, again, is spelling out here. He's trying to make this really clear. And then the direction that Paul's going to take this in, the rest of Romans, is this is how we get along with other weird people that we're in society with, right? The only way for us to get along with different people, we have a a group here, even in this church, but worldwide, the church is a multi-ethnic, multi-tribe group, right? We're from all different backgrounds. The church, God's people, are not a people who say, I have this skin color, so that makes me better than other people. Or I do this job, so that makes me better than other people. Or I vote this way, so it makes me better than other people. Or I have this personality, so it makes me better than other people. No, the church is a united people of God who come from different backgrounds. And the way we can love each other and not be judgmental towards each other is recognizing, I deserve judgment, but I was given grace. So now I'm going to give grace to you in return, right? Like, I'll be honest, I I think some of you are crazy, but God calls me to love you anyway, right? And I know you think I'm crazy, but because God's given you grace, you should give me grace. Because God's given me grace, I should give you grace. The Bible says this repeatedly, because God first loved us, we should love each other. Because God in Christ has forgiven us, we should forgive each other. Because God served us through Jesus, we should serve each other. So it's only this understanding of grace that allows us to get along with different kinds of people. If you don't have that understanding, we're always going to fall back to this wage mentality where we think we've earned it. And that's going to make us judge the people that we don't think have earned it. So moving on to the next point, the last point, we have the surprise of real rejection. And this is kind of the scariest part of the passage. As I said, there's some judgment type stuff in this passage. Um, There's this kind of irony. There's this twist. And the twist is this. I'll give away the twist now and then we'll read the uh, verses. The twist is... Often the most religious people are the ones that miss it. Often the most religiously zealous people are the ones with the most pride. 
And so this is a warning to us because just by being in this building, you're flirting with religion, okay? So I just want to warn you that religion is one of the easiest ways to miss God. So we have to be careful. So let's, let's look at verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Remember we talked about hardening is when God gives us over to our desire. So again, Romans 1, he doesn't take innocent sweet people and twist us and make us bad. Uh, but some of us who uh, desire to walk away from God, desire to do our own thing, ultimate judgment is God giving us over to our sin. C.S. Lewis said, it's God saying, thy will be done to us. And that's ultimate judgment. And that's, that's a scary thing. And that's what Paul is warning about here. Verse 8. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is scary stuff. But the ultimate poison, the ultimate danger, and this happens, I have a picture of a bottle of poison just for illustrative purposes here. When you see that symbol on something, you shouldn't drink it, okay? Just, just so you know, I was taught that as a child. And here, again, this is really tricky because Paul seems to be saying that these most religious people are drinking poison. And the poison is our own self, our own works, our own pride, and thinking, I am so religious, God owes me something. I've been good. I am owed. The universe owes me something. I've done the right things. And so he describes this idea of someone seeking but missing God. And it's tricky because Jesus says very clear, if you, if you seek, you will find, right? So there's a kind of seeking that we can be encouraged in, right? There is a kind of good seeking where, where we say, God, I want you. God, I need you. We're seeking him. And he says, he'll give himself to us when you seek him. So I don't want you to take this too far and think, oh, no, every time I'm looking for God, I'm not going to find him. No, it's, it's a bad kind of seeking. It's a kind of seeking where you're actually seeking your own righteousness instead of seeking God himself. You're seeking to establish your own spiritual resume so that you can say, look at me, look at what all I've done. And guys, we religious people are the worst at that. We're, we're the worst at that. We're the worst at saying, God, look at what I've done. I've done all the good religious things. So the scripture says that God wants us to do good things, but he wants us to do good things in response to the good that he's done for us. So that's the difference. It's not, we're not saying here, so don't be religious, don't do any good things, you know, just then run the other way from God. No, you just got to get the order right here, recognizing that none of us can earn our way into God's presence. None of us can bring a spiritual resume so that God owes us something. We come to him with open hands and say, God, give me grace. We're seeking him. We're seeking his person. And he gives us himself. And because life is found in Jesus, because of that, then we we begin to do good things. Not to impress him, but because we actually trust him now, right? It never makes sense to do good things for God if you don't really trust him, right? It's always this kind of weird game that you're playing. So my warning to us is to be careful of religion. Be careful of religion. Uh, we're glad you're here, uh, but remember that the New Testament often speaks of religion in negative terms. It often speaks of religion in negative terms, but it but it never speaks of knowing God in negative terms. 
So any sort of religious type thing that we would do here, the whole goal is that we would see God and that we would know God. We don't want to be religious for the sake of being religious. We want to pursue Christ. And so again, the irony, the surprise of real rejection is when we're seeking to establish our own righteousness, we miss the righteousness that God provides for us in Christ. Where God says, I've nailed all your sins on the cross with Christ and I give you freely his resurrection life. So that when you trust in him, God delights in you. He loves you. You are his loved, adopted child. There's freedom in that, in that kind of grace. Well, as we wrap up, I want to come back to this theme of rejection. And just the word was reminding me of a, a prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53. It's a famous prophecy that's quoted a lot by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says about Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So the the picture in Scripture is that Jesus was the one who was ultimately rejected for us so that we could be accepted by God. And so when difficult times come in your life, I would ask you to appeal to this truth about a God who faced ultimate rejection for you, who took your punishment upon himself on the cross so that you could be accepted, so that you could be loved. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to respond and worship together. God, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus, and I pray again that you would help us to have open minds and hearts. I pray for us that are skeptics that you would help us to see what you're up to in the world, that you still speak to us today. And God, I pray especially for those of us that are religious. Father, forgive us for trusting in ourself. We pray that you would help us to turn from self, from establishing a righteousness of our own, and to trust in the righteousness that you give us freely through Christ, who is rejected so that we could be accepted. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.